welcome to the Born Free podcast, where we'll discuss the challenges facing the world's wildlife and ecosystems. My name's Sarah Locke and I'll be talking to the passionate people doing their bit to try and secure a future where wildlife and humans can peacefully coexist. So today we're joined by Dr. Nikki Tagg, um, Conservation Programs Manager at Born Free Foundation. Um, thanks for joining, Nikki. Thank you for having me. Um, so do you want to just start with, so you've been at Born Free now for just over a year. Um, and do you want to just tell us a little bit about exactly what you've been up to? Okay, yeah, well, I joined uh, just over a year ago as a Conservation Programs Manager. So I support the head of conservation in sort of managing and delivering our conservation portfolio. Um, so I've been focusing quite a lot, I guess, of my time on conservation strategy. Um, so developing a conservation strategy is basically about, first of all, identifying uh, what your biodiversity or ecological targets are. So, for example, a population of tigers and then identifying which threats they're facing and then which behaviours and other factors are contributing to those threats. And that gives you your, your situation analysis or your threats analysis. And then the next step of a, a strategy is looking at, well, what can we do? What work packages can we deliver to change these behaviours and change the situation to improve uh, the, your, your target by reducing the threats that they face? So, so that's your, your conservation strategy. And that's one thing that I've been looking at across the board and our tier one programs mainly, and in particular for our uh, Central Indian Tiger Conservation Program. Okay, great. Uh, that sounds really kind of like all encompassing, I guess, um, in terms of Born Free's work. Um, and obviously you mentioned tigers there, but you actually had a, you, your history isn't um, based in, in India, is it? Sorry, you, you've mainly worked in Africa before, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I, I did a zoology degree and then a PhD in evolutionary ecology, which is more of a fundamental discipline and sort of looking at how ecology evolved. Um, and I did quite a lot of uh, field work through my studies in Canada and Kenya as well and the New Forest. Um, but it wasn't until I graduated that I sort of got out properly into the wilderness of Africa and spent several years volunteering or, or working for a stipend on mainly great ape conservation and research uh, projects. So chimpanzees and gorillas in Central Africa. Oh, wow. So I worked in Gabon, uh, both Congos. Um, um, various places. So in, in 2007, I, I took up the position of scientific supervisor for a, a great ape research and conservation uh, project. Um, and the idea of that project was that it was it was actually sort of um, funded by a research council in Belgium. And so therefore, its, its scientific output was the important thing. So we ran a research program in the forest and then had an agreement with local communities that they wouldn't hunt in these forests in return for anything we could provide them. So we, we carried out sort of small-scale development initiatives with them, conservation education programs, cocoa farming, anything that they identified a need for. Um, and then we would bring students or invite researchers from across the world to, to carry out their studies in, in this area. So my background really has been in sort of great eight research until oh, now. Wow. And is that still continuing? Because I, I know that you manage a project, don't you, in Cameroon? Is that the same one? Yeah. So that project's still going and I'm remotely managing it. Yes. Oh, yeah. amazing. And what's th what's that called? Sorry. It's Projet Grand Sange. So great eight project in French. OK, cool. Thanks just for those that <laughs> didn't didn't do a level. Um, OK, so that's amazing. Um, so really, really broad then. And um, how have you found then the kind of the jump from working remotely uh, and managing a project as opposed to you being there and being able to, you know, if you have issues and you can deal with those when you're there? How have you found the kind of the, the leap? 
Yeah, it is very different. I think it really helps to have spent time actually working on the front line in the field because you understand the realities of it. Although, to be honest, in my experience, I've been, although based perhaps in Cameroon for many years, I was often in the city anyway and working on a lot of the admin or the building relationships, a lot of working with authorities, that kind of thing. The the main difference I've found and the, the, the reason that I came to Born Free, to be honest, was because I, I was finding that although I loved the research I was doing and I loved running you know, a research program, I was finding that, that working for a sort of research-focused institute meant that the work I was doing wasn't actually contributing towards making any difference. So, you know, we were producing papers which were clearly explaining why chimpanzees and gorillas were declining in number. But apart from being read by, a, you know, a few people in the conservation community, they weren't going any further than that. That's so such I, an important point. Yeah. And actually something that I really think that you're not the only person thinking that. I think so. I think that's something that I really hear quite often about people is um, it's all well and good you producing papers. But at the end of the day, people, you know, you got into this because you want to make tangible benefits for wildlife. And I think that's definitely something that is kind of a, a changing movement, which is great which is really great. Yeah, and, and working here in Born Free, that, you know, there's policy, there's education, there's communication, there's marketing, all under the same roof, working for the same goal. You know, so that was one of the main reasons for, for taking that sort of move away from research and into conservation sort of So did you practice. see some kind of um, positive steps in your project in Cameroon? Yeah, so the model works on a kind of localised scale, but the problem is is that it's it, it's not as yet sustainable. Okay. Um, the, the, the local people still rely on the sort of the, the casual labour that we can offer them and the, the, the development initiatives that we can offer them. And also a lot of what you, you can offer them in that situation doesn't always replace hunting. So often these what we call alternative livelihoods can, can actually be supplementary livelihoods and people, because they need to, are continuing to hunt. Yeah, of course, that's something, isn't it, is that I guess ultimately when you're faced with a choice of legal or illegal activity and the illegal activity is always going to benefit you far greater, how can we ask people to choose? I guess that's something that you we need to working. run these programs yeah. alongside sort of law enforcement efforts mm-hmm. and sadly that's a, a big issue in central africa you know the enforcement just isn't there no i can imagine so um we just touched on briefly also um the tiger work that born free is doing in india um, and i know that you're actually preparing for a trip for india at the moment what are you up to there so the, this our program is called sapuda uh, landscape tiger partnership sltp for short and every year we we run a seminar uh, so this year i'll be attending the seminar that's happening next week and is this um, the first one that you've gone to? It's the first seminar yeah. I've attended, yeah. It'll be my second trip to the programme. Um, but this will be really nice because I'll have the opportunity to listen to all of the partners taking it in turns to present their work. So the, the SLTP works around uh, a network of Indian NGOs, mm-hmm. which Born Free supports on the ground. Um, so this seminar will give them the opportunity to talk, you know, give us updates from the field. And also for us to think about strategy of the programme. Okay. Um, as I mentioned, going forward, the vision... Uh, over the next few years. So can you tell us a little bit about the project on the ground? Kind of like what kind of area are we talking? Is it nine NGOs? Is that right? Or maybe they're not all NGOs actually. Eight or nine? I think it's I think it's seven, but we do have okay. another one joining. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a huge program. Geographically, it's a massive scope. We're talking mm. Satpuda landscape is in central India. So at the moment, we have partners working in seven tiger reserves in that area. But the scope of, of central India is is a lot bigger. Mm. And I think there's a potential for something like 20,000 kilometers squared of tiger oh, wow. habitat in you know within central India. And those are just the sort of protected areas. As, as I mentioned, tigers also need to be able to uh, sort of move between tiger reserves. So they're really a species which can't survive 
um, into the long run, just if we protect, you know, scattering of protected areas across the country, we need to make sure that they they have corridors so that they can find mates, find resources they need and disperse throughout the landscape. So really the key um, sort of aim of the SLTP program is that we're trying to help people and tigers to be able to live, to be able to sort of coexist across this huge landscape so um, that tigers aren't persecuted while they're moving in between reserves. And just to kind of like get a scale within that huge um, that huge landscape, how many tigers are we kind of talking about? And I guess we're, are we talking about lots of um, large villages of people? Is that kind of the lay of the land? Yeah, well, in terms of tigers, um, so the government uh, do a survey every few years. So their latest survey of tiger tiger numbers was in 2018, and their estimate India-wide is is just under 3,000 tigers. And within central India, we don't have the breakdown of those figures by reserve, but it's possibly about 300, and that's just to give you... Oh, a, wow, so that's uh, quite a sizable... Uh, like, so it might actually proportion. be 800 across central India. I got the okay. numbers wrong there, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's just to give you a ballpark figure. We don't actually know the breakdown. Um, but that's to, just to give you an idea of sort of the number of tigers. But within one reserve, it could be as few as seven tigers. It could be maybe sort of 40, 45. Forgive my ignorance. Um, are they territorial t- tigers? Yes. Like how does that work? So do males and females, do they overlap in theirs or are theirs quite segmented as well? I believe there's overlap. I don't know a lot about the ecology of the tiger, to be honest. I'm learning. Um, But I know that they they have big, huge territories. They can range. It depends really on on sort of the density of resources, but it can range up to sort of several hundred kilometers squared for the territory of one tiger. So what are the main threats for um, the tigers in the area then? Is it conflict? I mean, I know that we hear about um, and we see often... Um, you know, the awful trade in tiger skins and things like that and things like um, their bones becoming more popular in Chinese medicines. Um, but are we? is that an issue in these parts or is it kind of like conflict? What's the... That, that is an issue, yeah. There is tiger poaching going on, but the, what we deal with through the SLTP is more community-level uh, conservation and community-level threats that the tigers are being faced with. So really it's conflict, it's human-wildlife conflict. And there's many different um, sort of types of conflict. Really it's just about negative interactions between wildlife and people. So we can consider when uh, a tiger kills livestock or when a, a, a tiger or another animal injures somebody or damages crops. And then we can also look at the reverse, so when people mm-hmm. Uh, kill wildlife for whatever reason or if they retaliate and and kill a tiger so all those types of things are different types of interactions and and that's that's the main threat really in this kind of on this landscape level for tigers and how uh, common is that I I know that sounds like a stupid question it's quite hard to fathom sort of from the the other side of the world Um, you know how how often does this happen how often does a tiger kind of stroll into into a village I imagine for any one village that's quite rare, but you know we know that tigers and leopards do take cattle on a regular basis, and certainly other wildlife damaging crops, for example, is going to be more common than you know an encounter with a rare tiger. But it's it's a daily occurrence, you know, uh, conflict with wildlife for for people living yeah. rurally in India. And how, what kind of support do people get from, um, or if any, from from governments? Do they have things like compensation schemes? They do. Yeah, I think a lot of the problem with those is that people don't often know, or they don't know how to sort of tap into the into the compensation that's available or the process might be really slow or difficult or perhaps rigorous so that people don't actually receive anything in the end. So is there um, sort of an outreach element as part of the um, network strategies to kind of to to allow people to understand you know are are there kind of like points of contact within the network that people can go to if they have an issue with a tiger? 
Yeah, definitely. Different partners deal with it different ways. But one of the things that uh, Born Free wants to focus on more in uh, the Satpuda landscape is mitigating or reducing conflict or helping people cope with conflict because you can't always stop conflict completely but you can help people deal with it so that it's less of a, a, a negative you know less of a problem for them so one way is by making sure there's a primary response team available um, who can be there whenever you know if you report that your cattle has been killed by a tiger for example and I, I went along to an encounter like that when I was in India last year oh, really yeah and um, just help calm down the person you know take their details facilitate the process of applying for compensation and what other ever other measures that we need to put into place to make sure that they, they don't then retaliate against the the tiger so what had happened in that incident was it um was it livestock predation or yeah, yeah. it was a, a cow that had been taken by a tiger early that morning I think so we went along and uh, what this this partner did was set up camera traps to oh, wow. because often the, the the tiger would come back later on and that's what happened and they could even identify the individual tiger that had that came back uh, to retrieve the carcass. So are there issues with that in terms of identifying an individual because then does that do the community then kind of see that as like a problem animal that needs to be removed what what you know are steps taken to do that to to relocate because I you often see that as um I guess that's one of the four most things that people do ask for but in terms of like a conservation that's quite like a quite logistically quite difficult isn't it yeah I mean I think we they they set the camera traps in order to identify the 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 animal it's it's also just to check that it it was a tiger or maybe it was a leopard or or, for example but also I think the identification of the individuals is not something that they then share with the local people it's not in order to um you know identify any tiger as a problem tiger that's relocating a tiger you know is not something that we would be involved with and it's yeah. not always the the ideal solution no sure and have people's attitudes changed um since sltp was set up like do you think that people have become a bit more tolerant do you think it has helped kind of the situation in, in india in central india well, we certainly hope so. So one thing that we're working more on now is actually monitoring and evaluation of our programs across Born Free. And um, as I mentioned with SLTP, that's something that we'll be talking about at the seminar that I'm going to. Um, so uh, you can use research to to guide your conservation, but you can also use it to evaluate your conservation. So, for example, we might be uh, carrying out particular interventions in the field, but we need to know, are they working? Are we doing the right thing? Uh, we might be, um, for example, um, providing, uh, like we would in Kenya, we'd be building, uh, corralling livestock at night to keep them safe. Um, is that intervention actually having the effect we want? You know, we might be helping people claim compensation in India, but is it actually improving people's tolerance or not? And then is that having an effect on conflict? Is it reducing conflict? So we we can't know that unless we we do some monitoring and evaluation. So that's something we're working with the partners with. And and a lot of the time it's very simple research. You know, it's not all about complicated experiments. Often it's as simple as sitting together with a focus group, you know, youths, women, farmers, and and talking about their understanding or their attitudes. Or it might be about doing slightly more rigorous surveys and actually recording people's perceptions or... Um, that kind of thing. So that so that's definitely something we we need to find out. You know, is is our is this work actually a yeah, yeah ha- making a difference? Yeah. And is this something that you've seen sort of th- this kind of network? Because um, it sounds like quite a unique strategy. I think, or, and maybe you know more, but um, I've not kind of heard of similar sort of networks in India. Anyway, do you think it's quite an, a novel concept? Have you seen it elsewhere? 
Not really. I think it is quite a unique concept. I think the, the normal format for conservation is that there are hundreds of NGOs all working independently on the ground. And it's so important to share information and work together to have a, you know, a much bigger sort of impact. Um, so it, it's that's what SLTP does. Is it gives you that extra, extra impact. Again, I kind of think that's something in conservation that sort of or is way more of a movement now is kind of like, actually, we need to be working in unison. We all want the same thing, don't we? Um, and I quite like this project because it does have um you know it has the development human development aspect so sort of so at its core as as well as the as as well as the the kind of the conservation objectives um so what are the next steps for sltp you know if you're looking at, at a five-year ten-year strategy do they want to make the network bigger are they looking for more partners or are you just looking to kind of i mean i guess you're you know as you said you're definitely looking to um increase the um evaluation and monitoring approach of the of the project yeah i think the network's always open to more partners there are a lot of other ngos and institutions in india doing great work who who could contribute to the, to the work that sltp is doing so i think they're, they're always open to that um i think uh for me one you know, what the important thing is that we want to see the, the partners working more coherently together in the future and so at, at project level each of the partners is is doing quite well at sort of starting to monitor their own outcomes. So if we've got a, a conservation education program run in a few schools, it's quite straightforward to sort of monitor what impact that's having on the children in those schools. Mm -hmm. But it's it's at program level across the landscape that we need to, to work out ways to to monitor what effect we're having. And and like I mentioned, the government does tiger monitoring every few years. So that's that's not the kind of thing that, that I'm talking about that we need to do. But somehow we need to kind of be measuring uh, the, the impact on um, conflict. You know, are we yeah. reducing conflict across the landscape? Are we Im improving uh, people's tolerance towards tigers? You know, are we helping promote coexistence? That kind of thing. So I think that's the direction we need to be moving in with SLTP over the next few years. Especially if tiger numbers are growing, which is great. Um, and, I, and I actually just wanted to touch on, do you, I mean, what is the kind of the space for those tiger populations to grow in and that's quite a big question but you know do you have any kind of concept of how like what is the kind of I don't want to say carrying capacity but you know how, how much room is there to grow for their populations in India? I think there's still room I don't know the numbers um, mm. I, I very much doubt that it's at carrying capacity I mean the problem of course is that you know a lot of the land is is used for other things now for settlements or for agriculture for pastoralism um, so it's difficult now, but I mean, across central India, I just I, I have an idea that all the, the tiger reserves make up roughly 20,000 kilometers squared of tiger habitat, I believe. So if we were to extend our uh, activities, you know, a bit more widely within central Africa, you know, that's a that's a big sort of landscape for tigers available there. No, absolutely. Wow. So. Um, so what are the kind of the other key? I know we talk about like, the, the overarching goals um, for the project but what so this in terms of like the breakdown of the kind of the social benefits and we we spoke about a few of the educational outreach programs um there's also things like mobile health units is that right do you work on like water initiatives yeah so there's lots of different uh projects on the ground that, that the partners are involved with i suppose what we uh we can sort of group the, our initiatives into those which deal with reducing conflict or helping people cope with conflict or maybe reducing people's dependency on forest resources so uh, a lot of the the a lot of conflict between wildlife and people is when people are going into the forest to gather firewood for example or to 
gather uh, other forest products. So there's a particular flower that at a particular time of the year, everyone in India from daybreak is out collecting because they make a, a liquor or they make pickles with it. And I that's see. often where, you know, a tiger, for example, might mistake a, a child bent double picking up flowers as prey. And that's where conflict can occur. So if there are uh, ways that we can reduce people's dependency on these uh, resources in the forest and have them in the forest less. And it's also about uh, collecting, gathering water. Um, you know, wildlife and people both access water sources in the forest as well. So a lot of the initiatives are around that. And then, of course, conservation awareness and conservation education programs are very important within the program. Okay, so what are the kind of alternative livelihood options? Uh, Maybe you don't know off the top of your head, but you know the kind of alternative livelihood options that you're looking into to kind of help mitigate that 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 resource use. Well, it it can vary. It can be sort of uh, help setting up micro enterprises. So maybe you know women uh, having small restaurants. I visited one like that that had been sort of set up with with aid from a partner. Um, that they do a lot of careers training, some of the partners on the ground as well, just helping people know what's available and helping them to sort of access what's available. So perhaps working in the tur- tourism industry mm-hmm. or you're working as a mechanic, but you know, that there are many sort of different sort of skill skill sets available. Yes, yeah, so it's really different, I guess. That this, I mean, I, I suppose I wouldn't have really thought of like a mechanic as like an alternative livelihood. Like, uh, There's a stupid thing to say, but I guess you don't if you're in, you know, if you're living in such a rural area, that's just not at the forefront of so that's amazing that that's really having that kind of change yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's great okay well thanks so much Nikki I mean it's been really great to talk to you and I can't wait to hear about your trip um and to find out more about um the project when you return thank, thank you. you very much thank you for listening to the Born Free podcast if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the episodes follow us on social media or head to our website bornfree.org.uk My name's Sarah Locke and our producer's Philip Fortuna. See you next time.